So we decided we would do an entire radio show uh, consisting of our favorite people who have the initials MB. So uh, later in the show, you'll hear an interview with Mark Bittman, the famous cooking person. We all ran through some other possibilities. Mel Brooks, Milton Berle, Michael Bolton, Michael Buble, Matthew Broderick, Michael Bloomberg. You get the idea. And then we thought, well, who's the greatest get of all, the number one MB get? And that, of course, is Mavis Beacon, probably the most famous typing instructor ever. She really is the inventor. And she was apparently not available. Mike Birbiglia was, though. Uh, he's a wow. comedian, writer, actor, and director, and not a particularly good typist, I don't think. A uh, regular contributor to public radio's This American Life, Mike's first solo show, which I was lucky enough to see in New York, Sleepwalk With Me, won an audience award at the Sundance Film Festival, and he's currently on a 100-city tour with his stand-up show. Thank God for jokes. This summer, you can see him in season three of Orange is the New Black. So one thing that's not sort of like, like in your m- the major part of your official biography is that you're are you are you also in the latest movie version of Annie? Oh wow, yeah, yeah. I am. I I, uh, I play a, a, an inspector who comes in to inspect <laughs> the orphanage just in the one scene. Yeah, I uh, spent a day on that set. I was I was seduced by Cameron Diaz's character, which. Uh, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it was a, it was a blast. She played yeah. Miss Hannigan. It was really fun. Will we finally get to hear you sing? I go to all of your shows hoping finally you're going to burst into song. I sang on that set for 29 hours straight, and they <laughs> cut all of it. <laughs> The other way that I was going to go at you is uh, that you uh, are also one of the most famous. I don't know where you would rank yourself. One of the most famous people from Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Which got 29 inches of snow this week. Did it really? So, it, was the, it was on CNN. It was the most snowy uh, location in America. <laughs> you say that with such incredible radiant pride. Well, that was a big, big historic moment. They, uh, Gregory McDonald, who wrote the Flesh books, also from Shrewsbury. Uh, Char- wow. Charlie Pierce, who, like you, is on Wait, 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 Don't Tell Me, has two different panelists wow. from Shrewsbury. Yeah, and you know what? We, right down the street from where I grew up, I grew up on Westwood Road, and uh, there was a place called the Worcester Foundation down the street where we used to play soccer, and they invented the birth control pill. Yes. Yeah, I saw that woman's name. Yeah, it was on the list of famous people from Shrewsbury. Yeah. So I'm sure you didn't call up to talk about all this, though. You would like to talk about what it is you're doing right now. So Why not? Oh, you know what else, actually? This week, um, the first time speaking of it, uh, I wasn't able to make it to Sundance, but I'm in a film that's uh, playing at Sundance right now called Digging for Fire, mm. along with uh, Jake Johnson and Anna Kendrick and Brie Larson and Rosemary DeWitt. It's a Joe Swanberg film, and uh, it's, I, it seems like it's being really well received. Well, that's great. Everything's going right right now. And for somebody like you, I mean, is, you know, one of the, your, your concert persona, your onstage persona is that of kind of a loser, right? I mean, you, you try to tell stories. In which Why you, would you say that to me? <laughs> Why would you? I knew that you were going to do this. <laughs> but, um, Why would you paint me that way to your <laughs> listeners? I'm trying to maintain a sense that I'm cool that I'm the coolest person that anyone knows, that, that everything's going right for me. But don't you feel that's potentially ruinous to you, though? To, and the kinds of success that you're enjoying right now, because, in fact, so many of your your monologues are kind of about this sad sack experience you've had sure. or this humiliation you've endured, this yeah. mortification. So, I mean, if you're rocking Sundance, I mean, that's like almost career suicide for you. Well, what's perfect is that I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep keep the reputation going by not even being there. I mean, there's all kinds of, like, paparazzi shots and uh, exciting events and parties, and I am 
in a, I'm literally in a bathrobe on my landline in Brooklyn sitting next to my pregnant wife right now. And that's uh, that's where things are at for MB. That's the yeah, that, well, that's the MB that we know and love, and we don't, <laughs> never change. Please never change. On so, my landline, by the way, do you yes, have one of these? Have is, you heard of this? It the is, landline, and the, it is clear as a bell. Uh, we, yeah. We're thrilled about this. So thank God for jokes. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't. I'm a big Berbiglia fan. Is hey. there a name? Is there a name for that? Or, uh, Berbiglia Nation. Berbig fans. Berbig My Facebook account is Berbig. Uh, Facebook.com/slash/Berbigfan. That's oh. the best way you can come up with. I'm a big. I'm a Berbig fan. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess I could say that. So um, I don't think of you as a joke teller. I think of you as a um, I can n- see that. naturalistic, funny storyteller where the laughs just kind of come. And I'm sure that the, the, you know, some of these monologues are crafted in such a way as to really develop these laughs and pauses and beats and stuff like that. But I also have seen you enough live to know that you incorporate things that are happening right there, too. You're very spontaneous. If you spill pizza okay. on yourself in the car on the way down, that turns into something. I think the last time I saw you, you had actually spilled pizza on yourself in the car on the way down. Um, <laughs> oh, you mean three times a day every day? Yeah, exactly. Um, but So I don't think of you as a guy who gets up and tells, tells jokes. So why is the the new set called Thank God for Jokes? Well, a lot of it is sort of stories about jokes and, uh, and, and the degree to which jokes can get us in trouble. You know, like, the, you know, typically you can't really tell, like you keep thinking about jokes, you can't really tell them in your life, right? You can't, you can't tell them to strangers. Like I'm like when I'm at a par- like I was at a party recently and this guy goes oh yeah you're a comedian and how come you're not funny now <laughs> and I wanted to just be like well I'm going to take this conversation we're having and then repeat that to strangers right and then that's the joke so, right so or, you're the joke later or you could say that guy standing over there is a gynecologist is he looking between women's legs right now <laughs> right oh. and uh, right and that, but of course I didn't say that to the guy I just thought it you know I was right. like oh, you know kind of shook my head and. And, and it was deep in thought, and he was like, is there something wrong with your head? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go get a drink. <laughs> you know, because I, I don't say jokes in life. Like, I, honestly, people always think, like, you, might, you know, you must be a person who tells jokes. And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Like, I, I went to my – here's an example. Like, I went to my urologist a few – maybe, like, a few months ago because I had – you know, just to hang out. Cause, right. You know, just chilling. Um, no, I had a symptom – I'm going to put this as medically as I can, right. just so that it's radio friendly. I had a symptom that's sort of embarrassing. When I, when my wife and I would make love, mm-hmm. there would be like a <laughs> pins and needles sensation in my urethra mm-hmm. the moment that I uh, achieved that, heaven. What would you say? Achieved heaven. Achieved heaven. When I would achieve heaven, yeah. and uh, which I, at first was exciting. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh. Maybe this is a new type of orgasm. Maybe, you know, this is the next level. And then I was like, oh, no, the pain isn't going away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I went to the doctor and I said, uh, you know, I explained the symptom. He goes, it's probably a muscular thing. You're just trying too hard when you have sex. And I said, you're telling me. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I didn't say it. I just thought it. Right. I was like, you know, kind of shook my head. And he was like, is there something wrong with your head? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a comedian. <laughs> And he goes, uh, this, this really happened. He goes, with complete, utter disbelief, he goes, you're a comedian? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you're a doctor? You know, but I didn't say it. I just thought it. You know, and he was like, seriously, is there something wrong with your head? And, uh, and, but, you know, that, but that's the essence of it is I don't, I, don't say, I don't say jokes a lot in real life. I just think them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I write them down, and then I say them to people on stage and uh, – 
and it's and it seems to be you know I started writing the show about a year ago, but um, it seems to be increasingly uh, topical because comedy and speech are becoming increasingly controversial and and higher stakes right now. You know, with the incident in France, and uh, you know, with this, I you know I don't know if you read the article, the, the op-ed in the New York Magazine. Uh, uh, this weekend, I think it was the extremely about, long Jonathan Shade piece about pers- about, about, uh, political about political correctness. correctness. Yeah. yeah, and it was uh, you know it's it's a it's a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know that I come down on any one side uh, in the show other than kind of telling a lot of jokes that uh, ride the line, and then I I kind of talk I talk on either side of the issue. Like here's why that might be offensive. Here's why that might not be offensive, and. Uh, because I, I like to think about jokes from all all perspectives of all parties involved. So so you actually do tell jokes because, I mean, first of all— I do. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember, I know you mean, Colin, in the sense that I just tell stories, mm. but the stories all have jokes within right. them. You know, so in other words, I'll tell stories that have jokes, and then I'll kind of talk about what, in a lot of cases, the reactions are to them. Like, I have this story. If you have a minute, I'll tell you a story. I have a minute. I have nowhere to go right now. Okay, so I have this— I had to tell the story on stage where I say I was on an airplane and I was flying to California and I was eating a chicken salad sandwich on walnut raisin bread that I bought in the airport. And uh, you know that. Do you ever fly out of JFK? You probably do. I've, I have flown out of JFK. You know that little blue store that sells the chicken salad sandwiches? <laughs> oh, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, that place, yeah. You know, the little, anyway, the, the place that has all the little healthy things. And so I'm flying out of there and... And uh, eating the chicken salad sandwich, the flight attendant comes over, and he goes, "Excuse me, are there nuts in your sandwich?" And I, I don't know. I just I knew it wasn't going to end well. Right. You know what I mean? Because that sentence never ends with "Cause I love nuts." You know, just nuts, <laughs> nuts, 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 nuts. They're great and everything. You know. And so, as I responded, I just kept eating the sandwich. You know, I was so hungry, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Um, I think that there might be walnuts." In the bread, and he goes. Actually, you can't eat that on the plane because the woman seated by the window has a nut allergy. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, I won't feed them to her <laughs> or rub them on her face. And he goes, actually, she'll have a reaction even if there are nuts in the air. And I look at the woman. I go, are you serious? You'll have a reaction if there are nuts in the air. And she goes, yeah. I'll have a reaction if there's nuts in the air. And I was like, you shouldn't leave the house because there are nuts everywhere. And so I was so hungry. Like, I hadn't eaten all day. I was ravenous. And I was past the point of no return mm-hmm. with the sandwich. I was I was nuts deep in the sandwich. Right. And so I said to the flight attendant, is there anywhere, it's completely true, by the way, is there anywhere I could eat the sandwich? And the flight attendant goes, you can eat it in the bathroom. I knew we were headed there. And I go, Okay, and I walk into the JetBlue bathroom. I'm eating a chicken salad sandwich and experiencing, of course, the symphony of smells, you know, the bathroom right. and septic and mayonnaise, and I'm gagging, and I'm eating more of the sandwich, and I'm gagging, and I'm eating more of the sandwich, and I realize at that moment that I have what is called a fecal airspace allergy. And it isn't, it isn't just if I eat feces. It is if the feces are in the air. In the air, yeah. So, yeah, if the feces are in the air, I'll have a reaction. Now, the reason I bring this up is, you know, who doesn't like the story are people with nut allergies. Right. And, you know, who does like this story is everyone else. But jokes have to be about something. I, I First of all, I, it's so weird that you're telling this story because I actually have had the experience of telling a joke uh, in which 
the there was some kind of a sign, some kind of reference to uh, allergic to seafood, and and being communicated with electronically by a woman who who was offended by the fact that I was joking about seafood allergies, and said that not only was she offended, but that I should apologize publicly, <laughs> not only not only to her, but to the entire allergy community. And yeah. first of all, I was trying to picture the entire allergy community. You know, I'm, do they yeah. have meetings? Do they have <laughs> yeah, who are these people? Well, I always and I and I try to be sensitive to it because I I always point out in the show, you know that 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 these are you know like I on stage in my albums I talk about having a tumor in my bladder when I was nineteen and 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 sleepwalking dangerously out a second story window almost to my death and and being hit by a drunk driver and being made to pay for the car and those are my best jokes right. like that's the A material that's not filler. And and so you know I think that these things that that we've you know al- you know nut allergy or whatever fish allergy or whatever it is it's like these are the things that we should joke about. You've kind of taken your lumps for your own com- comedy. You're like an NFL player. You know you may have eventual you know structural damage to your head from the things that you've done that became funny. <laughs> yeah, uh. exactly. But th- th- do you get any sympathy for this? No, it's the people who are allergic to nuts. But that's right. Yeah. But for the most part, people are, are really cool about it. Like, I had a kid come up to me after one of my shows, and he asked me if I would sign his EpiPen. <laughs> because he has a nut allergy. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. Right. And and so I asked his mom, I was like, how many times have you had to spike him? And and she said three times. And I was like, wow, this kid almost died three times so that I could tell that joke. Uh, when you th- think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, it's so much more impressive. Well, I, I have this concept, which you are free to borrow, not that it's all that Please. great or, or worth borrowing, but because I often will get an email or something from somebody that I've offended by something. And what I say, and I say this with sort of initial caps on each word, is you are the most easily offended person about this, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. For example, I we had a show about Legos. Um, uh, I was uh, We were talking about the fact that boys play more with Legos than girls do. And I said if they had a set where you could make a Justin Bieber out of Legos, you know, more girls would, would use it. And I, I got this enraged email that went on for, you know, screens and screens from this mother whose daughter plays with Legos and she doesn't need to be cosseted to or, you know, or patronized by uh, Justin Bieber Lego sets. And she didn't think that's funny. And she went oh. on. And I kind of wrote back to her and I said, what you are is – you are the most easily offended person about this, right? Yeah. You know, there's nobody else anywhere near me right now who's as offended by a kind of sex-based Justin Bieber Lego joke. And so if, if what I do is tailor everything that I say for that most easily offended person, because there's one of those about everything, yeah. th- then you can never say anything, right? Yeah, and I think I mean my stance on the whole thing, and God, even even invoking that article from New York Magazine, I don't even want. I'm not going to line up on the side of that article mm-hmm. because I don't want people coming after me the way they come after that guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I say in the show, I say you know people people have the right to tell jokes, and people have the right to be offended by jokes, and both of those positions are fair. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that I I'm actually just rarely. I personally, this is I'm not something I, I push on people. I'm never offended by jokes. I'm only offended by actions, and there's a lot of actions to be offended by. There's so many. Yeah, and I I, I do think there are there is a type of comedian, and, and it is certainly not you, who is exploring that frontier. Um, you know, like what can I tell a joke about that you really will have a problem with? 
and I mean, the minute anybody dies, you go on Twitter, and there's four or five comedians who are just sure. already making but the that, first but, joke. But that's to me, that's just a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh well, I just don't follow that person, or I don't pay attention to that person. Or I actually will follow that person and look at it and think, well, that's really interesting. Why isn't it funny to me right now? Or or why is it funny? Why am I, I ready? Completely agree. Yeah. Why yeah. am I ready to laugh at this? Or why am I not ready to laugh at this? That's right. We'll take a very quick break, and we'll be back with more Mike Birbiglia. Okay, coming up a little bit later, we'll have Mark Bittman, part of our MB theme, but now the rest of our interview with Mike Birbiglia. So who are your who are your heroes? Who are your as as a joke teller, as an, an appreciator of jokes? I mean, well, who, I have to say, like yesterday, I, if anyone orders Louis C.K.'s specials or things mm-hmm. on his website, LouisCK.net, he sends out these emails. I saw um, that email, yeah. And I thought that was he sends out these e- mass emails, and usually comedians' mass emails or bands' mass emails are sort of boring, and and uh, his are usually pretty fantastically written, and uh, this one was probably my favorite of the bunch and talked about comedy clubs and why he chose to shoot this particular special in a comedy club and how special comedy clubs are in the sense that they're you know they kind of date back to you know the era of of abraham lincoln where abraham lincoln would sort of hold court in a pub and it would and it would be a, a group of people listening to him sort of spout off about various things while drinking and I saw Lincoln at Caroline's and he was extremely <laughs> extremely funny. Yeah, no, he was <laughs> Lincoln kills and is killed. Uh. Um, <laughs> but but it was an interesting point about like you know people would get up in bars and you know the history of comedy clubs is essentially people getting up in bars and saying things that are true and not true and fantastical and funny and 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 insane and and uh, and and there being kind of no rules and and that being kind of the beauty of clubs. I really like that, and I, I mean, I think Louis is at the forefront right now. Of, I mean, he gets so much attention. Like, it's it's mm. in some ways it's hard to heap more praise on him because you're like enough with the Louis praise, but he deserves it. I mean, he's he's changed the game in terms of of the types of type of comedy he puts out and the way he distributes it. The you know the way he distributes it on the site. Um, the other person is, I think Doug Stanhope is is probably the most fascinating comedian right now in terms of content he is so edgy and raw and he and i have almost nothing in common content wise and people are often surprised when they see that i like him so much but but i think he's just just a fascinating fascinatingly honest uh comic and then i say maria bamford is probably mm-hmm. if you don't know maria bamford she is utterly talented and and strange and uh, and and unique in a way that uh, that uh, is is you know probably one of the best comedians in the last twenty years I think I, I do think that uh, and this is you could argue that this has always been the case but that right now some of the comedians and I know that they're, the, they're the comedians that you like Louis C K Bill Burr Chris sure, Rock Bill's Chris, great, yeah. yeah Chris Rock these are guys who are actually explaining complex social problems better than they're being explained on the news that you know if, if you're reaching for an example or an, an analog or some way of explaining something you're often better off reaching into their material than you are 
you know, what somebody wrote in a newspaper. Sometimes column. true, although I have to say, you know, the, you know, we all have comedians are lucky enough to have no real social obligations. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to to play in and out of the truth. You know, I want to just come back to the idea of jokes, because, I mean, I think one of the other things about jokes is, as opposed to a typical Birbiglia monologue, where, in fact, what you do in your, in, in your storytelling monologues, your unified stories, are, you have a way of catching us off guard all the time. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're, you're about to describe something, and, and you, in a very organic way, you start making us laugh um, in a way that we really weren't expecting to. Whereas I feel as though when you, when you tell a joke, when you veer towards a joke, there's a sense in which the audience kind of tenses up. Like, here comes a joke. Will it make me laugh? Mm-hmm. True, true. You know, that there's some other threshold that you're trying. I mean, do you, do you have that sense as a, that there's a difference between the, the stories you tell and telling a joke? Well, yeah. No, I think what you're saying is, is true. And, and um, it's part of the reason why a few years ago I stopped doing these four or five minute sets mm-hmm. on talk shows like Letterman and, and Conan and things like that. Um, and I just started to do panel interviews more where I'll go on Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers or Jimmy Kimmel and just talk and tell stories and that kind of thing. Because there's something in that five-minute chunk of time where the expectation is it's a bit of a kind of a kill-or-die proposition to the audience for each joke. Mm-hmm. They're like, how's that joke? Oh, all right, applaud or not applaud. You know, it's like, I don't think that's fun. I don't like, I don't like doing that kind of comedy. I don't like watching it, really. Right. And also, I think another great thing about a story is a story doesn't always go one place, you know? I mean, that's right. it yeah. doesn't land. I, you know, when you were telling the, the, the nuts on the airplane story, I was thinking about a, a guy that I, I used to know pretty well. We were trying to work on a book together, and he had been a, a criminal agent for the IRS. He'd been, and a, as such, he carried a gun. And when he would get on planes, he would have to inform them in advance that he would be traveling with his gun, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he, he got on a plane one time. And uh, at a certain point in the flight, the stewardess came over to him at his seat and said, excuse me, are you the man with the bat? And, <laughs> and he thought, well, that she, she doesn't want to say gun in front of all these other, you know, people. So she's saying, are you the man with the bat? Yeah, yeah. And he said, and, right. And he looked at her and he said, yes, I am the man with the bat. She said, please come with me. And she leads him to the front of the plane and brings him into this uh, storage compartment where there's this cage with this live bat in it that's thrashing around and is, you know, very uncomfortable and unhappy. And this bat is, you know, is is going out of his mind. And and now he's in this very awkward position of having claimed to have a bat. (laughs) And not only does he have to explain that he doesn't have a bat and that this bat isn't his. That he has a gun, yeah. It's a great story, but it doesn't really land anywhere, you know? It's just oh, sort of, I like that. It uh, just needs a final line, maybe. Right, right. You you're yeah. right, write a line for him. So, and, he shot, so he shot the bat. <laughs> <laughs> See, and, and then we'd get emails from, from bat fanciers. And, no, yeah, there's people, no way. There is a most offended person by that story. A bat enthusiast? Yeah, there's, a, there's an MOP, a most offended person. Bats anyway. are a beautiful animal, though. They are. They are. We'll see. Now you've just wrecked the joke. Yeah. Um, uh, you can't talk about Bill Beautiful the Bat is after it's dead in the joke. All right, mm-hmm. Mike Verbiglia, this is so exciting to talk to you, as it always is. It's I love m- it, Colin. Loads of fun. My, always one of my favorite things to chat. Thanks for talking to me, Mike. All right, thanks, Colin. Okay, Take we're care. moving on to Michael Bublé and Matthew Broderick. No, actually, it's Mark Bittman in the next segment. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, take care. We'll take a very quick break, and we'll be back.
Today's show was produced by Metsy Baplin and me, my own both. Meg Bill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our executive producer is Mady Balarski. The part of Millbury was played by Mob Baxson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Maith Biddleton Show staff making bread with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Mercedes-Benz, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the evolution of the sitcom. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Mark Bittman. His new book is, I don't have to explain to everybody who Mark Bittman is, I think, at this point. He's a brand name. He's a, he's a concept. He's more than just a human being. Anyway, his new book <laughs> is called uh, How to Cook Everything Fast, A Better Way to Cook Great Food. And he has a column in the New York Times, and, and he is, he's an industry. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the new book, and we're also going to talk about uh, the fact that he, Michael Pollan, and some others are calling for a national food policy. Uh, and there's been great debate about that over the course of the last few weeks. Let's start with How to Cook Everything Fast. Mark Bittman, this is a cookbook that is aimed at a problem, right? It's aimed at the problem of people who don't want to eat bad food, but they have a window. They have a window in which to prepare food. Perfect description. I, you know, I would actually say it's aimed at two problems because the two excuses that I get when you say to people, why don't you cook, or when people say to me, here's why I don't cook, one is I don't have time, and the other is I'm scared or I don't know how to do it and I'm afraid I'll do it badly and so on. And I tried to address both issues here. I think everybody feels pressed for time, even people who do have time. You know, you'd have to sort of be a hobbyist at this point to want to spend an hour and a half, two hours cooking any meal. Most people would like to get out of the kitchen in less than an hour. So so I think FAST was designed to address all of our concerns about how do we do this efficiently and quickly and so on. But it's also – I tried to kind of recreate the way recipes are written so that it made it so that as long as you had the ingredients, which of course is important, as long as you had the ingredients, you could walk in the kitchen, start cooking, and be pretty much guaranteed of a good result without freaking out. And if cooking were as compelling as car driving, which is to say if people felt that they absolutely needed to learn how to cook, it, it wouldn't be that challenging for most people, just like car driving isn't. But because it's optional, we have to resort to kind of every trick we can imagine to get people to just try a few recipes and see how easy it is. The, the irony is that cooking is actually enjoyable, whereas car driving is not. Um, can be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, I learned how to drive, and now I sort of resent every moment I spend in the car. I learned how to cook, and I, I enjoy most of the moments that I spend in the kitchen. It does seem as though it's sort of weird. We're kind of clustering in the, into these two opposed poles with nothing in the middle. Either everybody, everybody's running out to buy How to Cook Everything Fast by Mark Bittman, uh, or they're clustering on the other pole, which is slow food, you know, take a lot of time. I mean, it's sort of weird in a generation that watches so many cooking shows that there would also be a whole bunch of other people who just want to get in and out of the kitchen in 30 to 60 minutes. I disagree with this. I think that, um, you know, of course there are people who are making prosciutto or pickling tongue or whatever. I mean, but those are – many of those are not particularly challenging processes. You just hang stuff up or put it in a jar and you wait six months. But you didn't spend six hours doing it. I mean, maybe you did. But I think cooking from scratch, whether it's fast or slow, is far more – those styles have far more in common than – not cooking at all. And if you really want to talk about the polls um, in this country, it's people who cook versus people who never go anywhere near the stove who've allowed others to determine what goes in their mouths, which is, a, you know, it's a really scary thing. If you relinquish control over what you're eating, 
I find that kind of frightening. This cookbook, which I think is it's a great cookbook. For me, it's a little bit the opposite of the way that I cook. The way that I cook is very ingredient-based. So I, I, I'm one of those sick people who goes to three or four or five or maybe six farmer's markets over the course of a week when the vegetables are in season and winter farmer's markets even when they're not terribly in season. I buy a whole bunch of lot stuff, and then I sit there and look at it and think, all right, what can I possibly make out of this? Whereas I, I think this cookbook really works better if – you have some kind of plan to begin with before you go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff. You sound like someone who knows how to cook, which I know you do, because mm-hmm. that's what I do also. You put a bunch of stuff in the refrigerator, you start pulling it out, and you try to make some sense of it. People like you and I are not the people that cookbooks are written for. Mm-hmm. Cookbooks are written for people who want to follow recipes, who want to be told what to do and how to do it. If my audience were people who threw things in the refrigerator – and then pulled them out and started cooking. Then some of the books that I've done earlier, like Kitchen Express, which is more of an idea book than really a cookbook, would have been more popular. I think my audience is people who say, tell me how to roast chicken parts. I have chicken parts. I want to know what to do with them. And that's who most of my stuff is addressed to. So far in using this book, what I've tended to do, and I think it's a great thing that you've done, is so you have a recipe, and then almost invariably, almost without fail, you have variants on it. I mean, that's not new in cookbooks, but it's, I think it's sort of nicely executed here. So, uh, you know, you've got pasta with scallops and potatoes, but you could also make pasta with shrimp and potatoes or pasta with scallops, potatoes, and chorizo. And then if you're a cook, you look at all those and go, oh, yeah, well, I could also, you know, I could chop up some of this other stuff. I've got that I don't know how to use anyway. Um, well, I've done that in all the – you know, how to cook everything is now a 20-year-old franchise, and I've done that from the beginning. There's always been variations. A couple other things in fast that I like a lot are this – with every recipe, but with many recipes, there's a if-you-have-more-time option, which says mm-hmm. you can you can upgrade this a little bit if you take a little longer, or – even faster, which is to say, oh, my God, I really have to get out of the kitchen or there are other corners I can cut, and there's that too. I mean, all cooking is a compromise. So, you know, if you want to spend six hours on a recipe, it'll be better than if you spend six minutes. But, you know, you have to find the sweet spot for you on a given day. I did encounter a concept in this cookbook that I had I just am completely uh, – words that I'm not familiar with, including fideos. I don't even know how I say Is that how you say it, fideos? Uh, yeah, it either means noodles or a kind of paella-like dish made from noodles. I'm glad that's new to you. That it's is great. I never, I never heard that word, and you know, I haven't uh, attempted it yet. But I like the concept. Do I like even what you just said there? The no- notion of a risotto made with with noodles, because obviously that's going to go faster than a regular risotto. Although there are right. fast ways to make risotto too. Right, paella, but whatever. In writing this, did you talk to a lot of people who are, are sort of n- not super comfortable in the kitchen? I mean, did, was this based a, on a little bit of research about sort of what people really are struggling with as attempted cooks? There was a team originally, two designers, two editors, two recipe writers slash cooks slash recipe testers, and me. Mm-hmm. So some people knew how to cook better than others. Obviously, Mm. the three of us who were recipe writers knew how to cook better than the other four. But um, one of the editors was a cook and the other wasn't. The idea was to say, how do we show the choreography of cooking? How do we show on paper what it looks like when experienced cooks, like you, go in the kitchen, pull stuff out of the refrigerator and start cooking? What is that dance? And the idea was to try to represent that both literally and graphically somehow. And the design of 
these spreads. There's only a few, you know, there are a few templates in this book, and the design of those took us months and months. But when we finished, when we started to write the recipes and we started to lay them out, we felt like we had really done as good a job as we could in trying to represent what actually happens when experienced cooks get to work in the kitchen. Do you have one or two favorites that are in here, things that maybe even came out of the process you just described that pleased you in a way that surprised you? Yeah, there are a couple. I mean, there are dozens that I like a lot. But um, the idea wasn't to just say, let's gather a thousand fast recipes and stick them in a book, which is what a lot of fast cookbooks are. The idea was, what are the recipes that people really like that we can make go more quickly? So in some cases, they're pretty innovative ways of tackling things. And um, the chicken parmesan recipe, I think, is kind of iconic, and I can describe it in 30 seconds. I think you go in the kitchen, you turn on the broiler, you put some oil in a baking sheet, you put that in the broiler, you slice chicken breasts in half through their equator, I guess, or the horizontal way. You put them on that baking sheet, which you put back in the broiler. You grate some cheese and mix it with some breadcrumbs. You slice some tomatoes. You put the tomatoes on the chicken breasts and put it back in the broiler. Put that back in the broiler. You chop up some basil. I don't think I'm forgetting anything here. You pull that all back out of the broiler. You put the cheese and breadcrumb mix on there. You put it back in the broiler until that browns. And then you sprinkle with the basil and you eat it. And you have this very nicely layered, not overcooked chicken breast with sort of melted tomatoes, not tomato sauce, but softened tomatoes, and a crisped up mozzarella parmesan topping from the breadcrumbs with fresh basil on top. And it's a really light contemporary delicious, I think, way of making chicken parmesan, it also takes 20 minutes. So uh, that to me, that's like the coolest recipe in the book. Are there also some things that exist now? I have one in my mind, but that exist now that didn't exist now that we should sort of fall down on our knees and be thankful for. For example, for me, uh, when we were growing up or even when we both started cooking, oh, I like how I just said Mark Pittman and I both started cooking like wow. we're on the same level. But um, there were no boneless chicken thighs. You couldn't go to Whole Foods or something and buy this huge package. Well, you couldn't of, go to Whole Foods, You couldn't go to Whole, you go to Whole Foods, but you couldn't go anywhere and buy, I mean, boneless chicken thighs. And they're not perfect for everything, but what a great boneless, skinless chicken thighs. If you've got them, there's so many things you can do with them. I don't know. Are there things like that that you're just sort of grateful that they exist now? Well, clean squid, for example. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is taking good ingredients and making them more convenient to use. And I think for many people, chopped vegetables fall, you know, pre-peeled and, and chopped winter squash, for example, falls into that category. Bagged salad falls into that category. I don't, And I don't I think – well, those are um, – There's a zen. There's a zen people are missing out on. You know. Well, I could say that about tearing the skin off of chicken thighs and taking them off the bones. So it's just a question of how much work you want to avoid doing, really. I guess. Although, I guess we everybody picks his own uh, zen and his own poison. I would hate trying to bone chicken thighs. But I'm very happy, you know, and I'm in a very good state chopping up even kind of a hard winter vegetable, even a rutabaga or something like that. I'm I'm cool with but that. But that's, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. But as I said, all cooking is compromise. You pick your battles in a way. I used to really love cleaning squid. Now I don't do it so much anymore. <laughs> so um, I think you pick your fights. You pick your the places you want to spend your time. 
this will be a good segue because, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons that this uh, book exists, this new Mark Bittman book, How to Cook Everything Fast, is that it's sort of an alternative to the way a lot of people eat, which is pulling a healthy choice, lean cuisine, something like that, out of the refrigerator, jamming it into the microwave, and God knows what's in it and uh, where it came from or who put it together or how much salt there is or whatever. You've sort of made a transition in recent years. You're still, you know, a huge cooking and recipe franchise, but you've also really been writing a lot more about food policy, about where our food comes from and how we eat and what it does to us to eat the wrong kinds of food. I mean, first of all, just to stay with the book for a second, I assume that really is part of this, is that you can eat something. It's not quite as fast as a lean cuisine, but it's almost as fast, and it actually has real things in it. I think my whole career has been trying to convince people to cook. Uh, And I think 10 years ago or whenever, it seemed like, okay, there's a way to expand this to talk about eating, and I have the opportunity to get a platform to speak about how people eat more than just how they cook, but how food's produced and how food's marketed and sold and so on. So yeah, there there has been a transition. The transition is really thanks to the fact that I have this platform at the Times, but um, well, I'm happy I do. So let's talk about this notion of a national food policy. This is something, there was like a, a big sort of Seneca Falls type meeting, I guess, uh, about this. And <laughs> Yalta. Yeah, Yalta. So tell us about this notion. You and Pollen and some other people have this idea of a, a national food policy. I'll take credit for setting up this meeting, which was me and Michael Pollan, Ricardo Salvador, who uh, is now a mutual friend but was a friend of mine and who is in charge of food and, and environment at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And a guy named Olivier de Shooter who was um, had a special food position at the UN where he basically traveled around the world evaluating food systems. Brilliant, brilliant guy um, from Belgium. And I said, let's just get together in a room and um, let's just talk about something that can come out of the four of us working together. I don't really care what it is. I don't know what it should be, but let's do this. So Michael was generous enough to offer his living room, which happens to be in Berkeley, so that wasn't <laughs> too painful. And... The four of us sat there from, I don't know, nine in the morning until dinner time with a break for lunch, and we just talked through everything we could think. And happily, we really agreed on 95% of the things we were talking about, which wasn't that surprising, but still, it would have been a drag if there had been a major fight. And we came out of it with this notion that we wanted to press for national food policy because it seemed to us that if you said something like, all Americans have a right to high-quality food, period, that sounds like a constitutional amendment, and that's not going to happen. But if you said something like that, then you would have a yardstick against which to measure policy or measure laws or regulations as you were trying to enact them. Does this advance the cause of all Americans having a right to high-quality food? So it took us a year for a variety of reasons. It took us nearly a year to put this thing together. We were... um, we had some input and we, we had some discussions with people at the White House. We talked to other colleagues. We talked to a bunch of people. We couldn't figure out what form we wanted this to be published in, on and on and on. And nor did we know what was going to happen when we published it. But we finally settled on publishing it in the Washington Post, which happened, I think, three or four weeks ago. And on a Sunday, and the Post gave it great play, and it got great play, and mostly positive response. It got some negative response from people who thought we were naive or people who thought we didn't understand how politics work and so on. But for the most part, how could you argue with something that says we need a national statement that says food should be affordable, food should be nutritious, food should be fair, 
food should be green, which is essentially what the call for the national food policy says. I mean, some people might argue back, well, actually, we do have a national food policy. Unfortunately, it's the opposite of what you just described almost. Uh, There are incredibly powerful interests that dictate what it is. Therefore, also changing the way things are are, is going to be very difficult. And we did a show a while ago that I sort of consider now to be kind of a paradigm for that, where we were talking really about medically resistant bacteria, about antibiotic resistant bacteria, and the the probable linkage between them and the amount of antibiotics Mm -hmm. that are heaped into livestock. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you stuff you already know. And so, you know, I mean, one figures 80% of the antibiotics given to anybody in the United States are given to animals as opposed to humans. The difficulty with changing this, obviously, is that the people who want it to stay this way really have a lot of money to put into the political process, really have a lot of money for fighting off reform, and that previous iterations of attempts to reform exactly this thing, going back decades, have been beaten down by a very powerful agribusiness lobby. So... I'm not one of the people suggesting that there's anything naive about your food statement because I know that you've already thought about this. Like, what do you do about that? The fact that the other people seem to have a lot more power and influence. Well, what you don't do is listen to that statement, you know, which there's nothing to argue about. Everything you said is true. But what you don't do is despair. I mean, you have to get out of bed in the morning or, you know, it's not. Wendell Berry, I once said to Wendell Berry, you're optimistic, and he said, I don't like that word because there's no reason to be either optimistic or pessimistic, but there is reason to be hopeful or we want to have hope. So you work in the hope that your work will do some good. And in my current Times column, I sort of address this by saying people are asking me all the time, what can I do? I just got And I just got off a book tour for fast. And in fact, many of the conversations were like this. Let's talk about cooking. Okay, now let's talk about not cooking or let's talk about the other stuff that you do, which is fun. It's much more fun than doing cooking demonstrations. (laughs) So what are the things that people can do? One is you can eat better because that has an effect on everything. And that's simple. The second is you can make sure that your job If you care about food, you can make sure that your job reflects that. For example, if you're a radio host, you can make sure that you talk about food as an important thing once in a while. So you're doing that. The third is, you know, if you're a parent, you worry about school lunches and things like that. Or if you're a citizen, you worry about what your town is doing about things around food. And then the fourth is we have to start making food an issue that candidates cannot ignore. And one of the things about the call for the national food policy was to pressure the president to say this is an important thing. And if you ignore it, you ignore it at possible risk or cost to you. And, I, you know, I would say that to anyone who's running for office, that we need to make candidates take stands on antibiotic resistance, for example. Why are antibiotics still being routinely used in the prevention of disease and as a growth enhancing drug in animal production. We know that's a bad thing. We know that we can live without that. Why is that still happening? I want my congressman to, you know, the person who's running for Congress from my district to answer that question. And I want to know that he or she is going to work on that stuff when he gets to Congress. And I think we all need to do that. We need to start exerting pressure on food. We need to say, This is one of the most important things there is, and therefore we need candidates to pay attention to it. Seems to me one of the other things we need to to do is to expand the definition of the word we when it's used in sentences like this. And one of the most Mm -hmm. exciting programs I've heard about in a long time is down in New Haven. 
I forget who's doing it. It seems like something Yale Food System would be doing, where they're taking you know people maybe at the lower end of the socioeconomic continuum, helping them grow stuff, teaching them in the connections between health and food. There's a, a farmer out in eastern Connecticut named Wayne Hansen who I, I, he's an organic farmer. He always says to me, food is medicine. Uh, if you eat the right food, you're going to be healthy. And one of the realities is diabetes and heart disease are incredibly democratic things. They they really kind of attack everybody. And on the other hand, I think there's this kind of sense that we, when we're talking about sort of Bittman and pollen kind of stuff, you know, that there's a lot of people who either feel excluded from that or, or just not touched by it in a way. And that somehow or other, uh, an education process and an activism process has to go on to create a grassroots populism around food. And I think that's a pretty difficult thing to do, you know, because people's way of eating is ingrained, you know, and it's very much a, a product of the environment that they live in. I, how would you react to that? All good points. And I, it is a difficult thing to do. But again, you know, I'd say difficult, but not impossible. And in a way, it takes us back to cooking. It takes us back to how how you eat and how you see food. And I, you know, I struggle with this kind of question all the time because I feel, I know Michael has this issue also, I feel as though I'm accused of being an elite and, you know, I do write for the time. So, you know, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to think about that, you're going to think. But, you know, I never say to people you have to shop at Whole Foods. I never say to people you must buy organic. I never say to people you must buy local. I, I could go on. Whole Foods thing aside, let's say local food is preferable to not local food. But there are two questions that I think people can ask themselves when they're eating that make it clear that this is not at its base an elitist exclusionary way of looking at things. The first question is, how much junk food do I eat? That's not a weird question. And to the extent that you can eliminate junk food, hyper-processed food, from your diet, you're doing yourself and the food system a favor. So that's, I know that that's not possible for everyone. I know it's difficult for some people, more difficult than for some than for others. That's why we need to change the environment as well as changing what we say. But for many, many people, eliminating or strong, you know, greatly reducing the amount of junk food they eat is a big step. And then the second big step is now you're looking at a spectrum of food that's really food because you've taken the junk out. And in that spectrum, you eat more plants. And again, I'm not saying organic. I'm not saying local. I'm not saying buy them from Whole Foods. I'm just saying eat more plants this year than you did last year. And in a way, I think those two simple steps are like the key to looking at food in a different way. And then, you know, then if you want to be, if you're well-educated, if you have more money, if you want to spend more time thinking about this stuff – Yes, the local question, the organic question, all of those questions can come into play. But those first two questions are very broad and easy to apply and easy to understand and not at all exclusionary, I don't think. I always say there was one felicitous phrase, and only one, that came out of the George W. Bush administration, uh, and it was the soft bigotry of low expectations. And you can, <laughs> you, you can apply that to food. You can see, If you're saying to a whole class of people, well, they'll never get it. They're just going to eat fried chicken and, and crappy food, and they're going to live with a certain level of diabetes and heart disease that they don't really need to have because it's too ingrained in, in who they are culturally. And we're always going to seem like elitists and artisanal freaks uh, if we come at them with this stuff. That is the soft bigotry of low expectations is because the people do they look around them so they look around at their families and they see somebody with type 2 diabetes somebody with heart disease that he doesn't the person doesn't need to have it and you're saying those people can never get it i don't buy that 
Right. I don't buy that either. But I do think that this is one of the reasons that when you talk about food, you wind up having to talk about politics. You wind up talking about having to change the whole system because you're saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if people were better educated? Well, why aren't people better educated? Because education budgets have been slashed over the years. So if you're going to lower government services, federal services, including education, including public health services, then things are going to get worse. It goes without saying. So we are, in a way, swimming upstream. But, you know, these things do run in cycles. We do have the 30s and the 60s to look back on as periods where many, many progressive things happened. And that could happen again. And I think we're about to run out of time here with our studio. But, um, I mean, it's also important to emphasize, it's sort of like, well, one of the things Pollen says is, you know, don't eat any ingredient your grandmother wouldn't recognize the name of. We're not talking about new ideas. We're talking about getting back to traditional ideas. Whoever you are, your grandmother didn't cook with the stuff that is being fed to you now. You know, it is about your grandmother. But even if you didn't know who your grandmother is, if you start reading the labels or you start thinking about what's in the food you eat, you cannot cook that stuff. So... If you think about what's real food and what's not real food, it almost comes down to a question that's as simple as that. Do you recognize it as food or is it so processed that it's become an unidentifiable food-like object, a UFO? And if it has, you probably don't want to eat it. (laughs) All right. That's a good place to end. Mark Bittman, good to hear your voice again. I didn't even get to say, I don't know, when did we, we used to be in the Hartford Current Newsroom with me and Linda Juca. I don't know what year that was. was, Early 80s. I would say over 30 years ago. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm seeing Linda later today. and um, Say hello to her for oh, me. I totally Nice will. talking with you. All right, Mark. Take care. Take bye-bye. care, Colin. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.